Daily Drive is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Find out what Reynolds is up to in the digital retailing space by visiting reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. Before we get to today's episode, tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attack. It's a moment to recognize those that lost their lives that day but also a moment to honor, celebrate, and thank those that have made sacrifices in the service of the United States and its citizens. Many of those women and men are military veterans that have made a notable impact on the automotive industry. On November 8th, Automotive News will publish a special section that will honor military veterans who are leaders in the automotive industry. The notable military veterans in automotive feature, published just before Veterans Day on November 11th, will recognize veterans working in the industry who have had a record of outstanding career accomplishments, contributions to their community, mentorship, or helping other veterans transition to civilian life. Today, or tomorrow, as we remember 9-11, Take a moment to nominate yourself or someone else who you believe is a notable military veteran in automotive. For more information, visit autonews.com forward slash notable vets. Nominations close October 1st. Now let's get to today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Daily Drive. I'm Steve Smith with Automotive News. It's Friday, September 10th. The conversation surrounding the push to electrify transportation is no longer debate about if millions of EVs are coming. They're coming. A lot of conversation these days related to EVs is being driven by some complex questions that need to be addressed as the automotive industry transitions from one that builds vehicles powered by gasoline to vehicles powered by electricity. Questions like, do consumers want them? Is there enough charging infrastructure? Are there enough batteries and enough battery manufacturing capacity to match demand? Is the EV supply chain, batteries included, ready and resilient? That's an interesting question. Particularly if you think about the lithium, cobalt, nickel, manganese, and graphite and where in the world these vital battery materials are found. Today, we're going to focus on graphite, which, according to an article in Resource World magazine published earlier this year, is, quote, the anode material in a lithium-ion battery and is the single largest component by weight. There are no substitutes, and almost all of it comes from China. End quote. What if I told you a replacement for graphite in a lithium battery anode had been invented? What if I told you that replacement could drop into existing lithium battery manufacturing processes? What if I told you it was made in the USA? The implications on supply chain resiliency and making electric vehicles in the United States could be significant. That's exactly what Rick Lube, CEO and co-founder of Group 14, and his team have done. They have created lithium silicone battery materials that can replace the use of graphite in lithium battery anodes. He says the innovation has five times the capacity and affords up to 50% more energy density than conventional graphite for lithium battery anodes. Beyond supply chain implications, Lube says there are also cost and weight benefits and, of course, sustainability benefits, one of the driving forces behind EVs. The company has been serving primarily the consumer electronics industry, but is on a mission to enable the electrification of everything, 
including cars. Last month, the company announced a partnership with InnoBat to deliver customized lithium silicone batteries to automotive OEMs. He says the combination of Group 14's technology and InnoBat's experience and scale as a global EV supplier are a perfect match to help create a future of electrified transportation. What's the science behind lithium silicone? And what are all of the benefits? We've reached Group 14 CEO and co-founder Rick Lube at the company's headquarters in Woodenville, Washington. Rick, thanks so much for joining me today on the Daily Drive podcast. How are you? Excellent, Steve. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining. Really exciting conversation. We talk about EVs a lot on the show and we cover it a lot in the pages of automotive news, but there's so much complexity when it gets to the chemicals, the science in the batteries, U.S. supply chain, the United States push towards building more electric vehicles uh, here in here in America, et cetera. Why don't we start today's conversation with the science and what I think is an innovative breakthrough that you and your company have achieved. Let's talk about lithium silicone and where it's used in the battery. Sure. So, you know, we think of uh, the evolution battery technology as as kind of step change. And so, of course, for 150 years, we've had lead acid batteries. Then from a rechargeable battery perspective, NICATs came along and then nickel metal hydride. And finally, lithium ion established its dominance, you know, maybe beginning 30 years ago. We see lithium silicon as that next step change beyond lithium ion. And we differentiate it from lithium ion because it is a very different uh, chemical reaction going on on the anode and a very different material approach to the anode. And so it really is enabling a, a, a very significant improvement in energy density and potentially charge performance. And so the fundamental difference is the anode in a lithium-ion battery today is 100% graphite and has been for 30 years. We've developed a battery that's able to use silicon as the anode material and it has tremendous benefits, hence uh, a lithium-silicon battery. So is this a 100% replacement for graphite? It is. It is. You can use it as a drop-in to blend it with graphite to get uh, incremental improvements, or you can use it as a 100% replacement for graphite. So that's interesting because some of the research I've done with graphite and applications within electric vehicle batteries and lithium-ion batteries, and I am by no means an expert, but a couple of the things that I think resonated and rose to the top based on some reading I've done. So obviously graphite is in the anode material. It is the largest component by weight of a battery. There are no substitutes and almost all of it comes from China. It seems that what you've invented here, this innovation changes the changes that statement in, in some, in a number of ways. So, you know, so are we saying now we have a substitute for graphite when it comes to, to these types of batteries? Absolutely. So, you know, silicon is the second most abundant element on Earth. Uh, It's everywhere. And so being able to switch to silicon gives us tremendous flexibility on sourcing that kind of material. Uh, That's just to begin with. But, you know, back to the science a little bit, to your point about uh, the the amount of weight in the battery that is is due to the graphite. You know, in a battery, you've got an anode and a cathode. The cathode brings the lithium, and that's where we talk about uh, all those complex compounds uh, having nickel and cobalt, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But the anode is graphite, and that graphite anode takes up about 60% of the volume of the battery. 
So it's not delivering any lithium. It's just sitting there to absorb the lithium when you charge the battery. So if we're able to shrink the size of that anode, we can put in more cathode, and that brings the lithium, and that brings the energy density. And that's the fundamental advantage of being able to make silicon work in, in one of these battery systems. So there's certainly weight benefits, and in the world that we live in, that means electric vehicles are lighter. That means that they can go further and faster. Can you talk a little about perhaps any charging benefits that come from lithium silicon versus graphite? Are we talking faster charging? Are we talking more range? What are some of the charging benefits that comes from this, this chemistry? Yeah, so silicon as an element has fundamentally better charging characteristics than, than does graphite. Uh, of course, charging in a battery is dependent on many, many, many design features in the cell itself and the battery pack and the charging infrastructure. So at the end of the day, it's it's really up to the cell manufacturer to determine the strategy on fast charge versus maybe some other uh, you know, preferred characteristics depending on the, on, on the application. But fundamentally, silicon is a faster charging material than graphite. What about a cost perspective? You know, you mentioned drop-in, so this could be, you know, a, a pure 100% substitute. I think it could be a 50-50 mix substitute based on some of the materials I read about the work you're doing. From a cost perspective, if I'm a if I'm a manufacturer of batteries, what are the benefits there? Sure. So we think about cost in terms of dollars per kilowatt hour. And at the cell level, you know, your cell has a certain amount of energy density and a certain amount of cost. So in order to improve that dollars per kilowatt hour, we can either reduce the cost or increase the energy density, or of course, ideally both. In the kind of uh, system that we have developed, we've effectively created a smaller anode, so we are able to put in more cathode, but everything else in the battery is the same. Same separator, same electrolyte, same packaging, same pack system, same battery management system. So the costs are basically the same. You know, a little bit more cathode cost, maybe a little bit less anode cost. But we increase the energy density by up to 50%. And so that corresponds to a dramatic improvement in dollars per kilowatt hour. I think the other thing from cost, if I'm building these things to your point, and I don't have to do a big retooling exercise, right? It seems like a like a pretty straightforward swap of the material. That's exactly right. So this this handles exactly the same way that graphite does in current battery manufacturing process lines. So it's a true drop into an anode coating line. And uh, and so really no additional capex required whatsoever from the battery uh, the battery industry. This is really important from our perspective because there's already so much established battery infrastructure, battery manufacturing infrastructure across the globe. And it seems like every week we're seeing another announcement of a multi-gigawatt hour battery plant uh, being built you know, somewhere, uh, somewhere worldwide. So it's not realistic to think about trying to deploy a technology that requires all that infrastructure to be retrofitted. Uh, the industry is just growing too fast to go back and try to update uh, plants that are already running at, you know, at full tilt. So we think that drop-in aspect is really critical to creating value in the industry. I want to talk a little bit about these facilities, particularly your facility here in a couple of minutes. And I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing and how that impacts some of the things we're hearing out of Washington, D.C. relative to long-term bets on manufacturing electric vehicles and climate and sustainability and all of those things. Before we get there, though, in, in, on the sustainability front, I'm curious, end of life cycle, does this technology 
change the recycling game any? Are there any benefits that come from the end of, of life cycle of batteries that use your technology? You know, the our studies so far indicate that our materials have an incredibly long uh, life cycle. And so we've pulled our anode material out of batteries that are basically beyond their useful life and dropped them into a new battery system, and they work as well as they did in the in the first charge cycle. So there's a, a couple of different ways to think about reuse and extension of life cycle. Uh, one is, of course, the material is recyclable. But at the anode level, even the anodes can be reused in a new battery system. So a lot of flexibility uh, in terms of uh, how to manage that end-of-life uh, challenge. Let's talk about some of the legislation infrastructure, right? These conversations that are heading at, happening at the federal, state, and local level. Manufacturing competitiveness. What's the role that America is going to take? When you listen to the conversations that are happening with legislators and supply chain resiliency is a big one. And the question of do we have enough relationships globally? Do we have the supply chain to get some of these vital materials through trading partners into the United States? Do you think this technology is a key driver to being able to produce and manufacture, maybe alleviate some of those supply chain concerns that might be on on uh, folks' minds. Absolutely, you know, the, there's no doubt that the the that all industries, whether it's consumer electronics or automotive, are shifting back to uh, a domestic supply chain strategy as much as possible. You know, there's a lot of strategic and you know, I guess, economic reasons why why supply chains became more globalized. Uh, there's a lot of recognition now that you know between supply security and supply chain efficiency, and really the the leveling of costs uh, worldwide, uh, it might make sense and does make sense to bring a lot of those supply chain uh, elements um, back to to a, a domestic production uh, location. And that's just not the United States looking at doing that. It's you know Europe is is on the same trend, and and really every major manufacturing industrial country is is looking to to bring those supply chains uh, back uh, in-house, uh, so to speak. Um, it's critically important, I think, uh, for the industries to really be competitive. And another way to think about it, you know, the automotive industry is a regional industry. So we don't typically buy most of our cars from overseas. Most are made uh, here in the U.S. Even if it's a Toyota, it's probably made in Indiana, for example. Uh, Honda may be made in Tennessee. Um, likewise, with Europe and Asia, the automotive industry is predominantly domestic. And so those supply chains also need to be domestic. Uh, and so we think that we provide you know, a really critical path to bring uh, at least the anode side of the battery, that whole uh, supply chain, bring that completely back into the United States. Um, of course, we're also uh, involved in a joint venture for production in Asia, recognizing mm -hmm. that uh, Asia also wants to have domestic access to materials. And then we've got a vision to do the same thing eventually in Europe. So recognizing that these supply chains will become more and more domestically focused, uh, we've got a vision to put manufacturing in all the major uh, automotive manufacturing centers. Well, when it comes to the United States, I think you, you all are are walking the walk. If, if they say you've recently opened a new plant in Woodenville, Washington, uh, April, I believe, of this year. Can you talk about that facility and, um, you know, how many employees do you have? Um, you know, tell us what goes on at this new, at this facility. 
Yeah, this is the first facility in the world that is making materials to truly enable lithium silicon uh, batteries. So we're really excited about being kind of the first mover here. Um, it is a commercial production facility. It is enough scale to supply uh, already into uh, the consumer electronics industry. And of course, provides the kind of infrastructure and, and scale to help drive qualification processes in the EV space. Um, you know, we've grown amazingly quickly over the last, uh, just the last 18 months or so. You know, we're up to about 60 folks working in the process lines today, um, up from just a core team, uh, you know, a year, year and a half ago, and uh, and need to keep growing. In fact, we're already running out of space here in this facility, so we have to start getting creative about um, where we put the rest of our folks as we bring them on board. Um, but the longer-term vision is to put a an even much larger facility, maybe 100 times bigger, uh, here in the United States, and that would truly be EV scale. And we're really excited about that next big step. Um, that is what's really going to start driving some step change uh, improvements in dollars per kilowatt hour for the EV industry. And we think we'll enable cost parity with internal combustion fairly quickly. We'll be right back with more. As online experiences exploded this past year, it was clear dealers needed an approach that kept them in business for the long term. Chris Walsh, Casey Edwards, and Dave Bates, Top Reynolds executives, sat down to discuss today's digital retailing landscape. Here's an excerpt from that roundtable discussion. So what are dealers trying to do to get this fully online and online to in-store experience? I mean, that's a great question, and honestly, it's, a, it's kind of a hard one to answer because retailers are kind of defining and using digital retailing differently. You know, to some dealers, it's selling a car. To other, it's sales and F&I, and they, they tend to be approaching it in chunks versus, you know, kind of a holistic, holistic approach, and then you end up just focusing on one or two things when you need to focus on, you know, more of a big picture. Digital retailing is dealership operations, period. Reynolds' Retail Anywhere approach focuses on streamlining dealership operations and improving profitability. For more information about this big-picture, holistic approach, visit reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash retail anywhere. Are you finding the talent you need to support your current facility? I mean, we, we hear often, hey, we need more STEM you know, to drive this this long-term strategy, manufacturing is important, pathways of prosperity, et cetera, for American citizens. Are you finding the talent you need? You know, it's always a challenge to find um, the best folks. And so it takes a big effort and, uh, you know, a lot of screening and a, and a lot of recruiting. Uh, but to date, the, the team here is fantastic. Uh, I wish we could hire faster. <laughs> we always have open uh, open requirements for process operators and engineers, et cetera. And so we have a long list of, of, uh, of openings. Um, and the folks are out there. It just takes a while to, to find them. Now, we have seen uh, just recently a really nice uptick in interest um, across the board for uh, more of the entry-level process operators. And mm -hmm. I think that's you know more related to the current economic conditions as we're coming out of COVID, et cetera. And so really excited about the opportunities to access uh, kind of a, a broader labor pool here for for uh, expansion of the facilities. Um, and of course, you know, Washington State's a great uh, kind of uh, 
you know, center of an ecosystem for for STEM talent. You know, between the Washington State Universities and being in in uh, in the Northwest, uh, a lot of fantastic engineering programs. So I'm I'm happy about our location. Happy about access to folks coming out of the universities. You know, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, et cetera. But I always I always want more good people. <laughs> so. Uh, anyone interested in, in a fantastic uh, job opportunity, uh, check out our website and, uh, and, and let us know what you, what you can do for us. I think that's, a, that's an important message, right? This notion of dispelling jobs in manufacturing is dirty, dumb, and dangerous. You clearly are at the forefront of, of work that is not dirty, dumb, and dangerous. So I think your, your, your ask for help, if you will, I think is an important message because it's indicative and it's a showcase that say, hey, there are good jobs available in the United States when it comes to manufacturing and when it comes to EVs and lithium batteries, et cetera. We've only just started this entire journey. That's right. And these are skilled jobs. These are these are jobs that require uh, training and expertise and are, you know, long term opportunities for folks that want to get in this kind of industry. I want to get into some of the partnerships you talked about, the one with Innobat, and then I understand you've got another one uh, with SK. Before yep. we do, one more question about the the Woodenville facility. Sustainability is such an important part of the topic we're talking about. Can you talk about what you are doing at the facility to drive sustainability, maybe in your processes, how you manufacture, et cetera? Sure. So one of the things that we think is really important about being located in the Pacific Northwest is, first of all, one of our biggest inputs is power. And up here, it's all hydro. And so uh, that's really important to the ethic of the company and the culture of our employees, knowing that, uh, you know, the power going into our systems are are sustainable, renewable and, and clean. Um, so excited about that, uh, that opportunity to be here where that power uh, is available. Um, in general, all of our processes, we look very, very closely at sustainability and re renewability. So, for example, we're in the process of, of uh, re-engineering some of our inputs to use 100% renewable uh, materials. Uh, and so that, that project is going extremely well, and I think we might have that implemented in the next 12 months or so. And then, of course, uh, looking at all of our outputs, making sure that, you know, if we do have any byproducts, that we've got a useful home for those and put as little in any kind of a uh, waste receptacle as we possibly can. So across the board, the culture here is is uh, is from top to bottom really excited and really focused on on the challenges we're seeing with making sure everything is is uh, as as low impact as possible. So let's talk about these partnerships, these joint ventures that you've recently or that you have in place. Let's start with the partnership with Innobat. Announced uh, within the last few weeks, what's the objective? How do the two firms complement each other? So, yeah, Innobat is an up-and-coming uh, major player in the European battery manufacturing space. You know, they're positioned to be one of the leading manufacturers long term, even though they've only been around for a couple of years. Great technology, great funding, uh, great foundation to, to go forward and grow rapidly and do great things in the industry. Uh, what we're really excited about our partnership is we are really taking a, a high-end, high-tech uh, battery technology company, and we're boosting them with a state-of-the-art opportunity to transition from lithium-ion to lithium-silicon. And that's going to position them even better in in that European uh, battery market. You know, they're focused on 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 heavy trucks and buses as well as automotive, 
And they see this as an opportunity to to take another big step ahead of the competition by by being able to to uh, to use these lithium silicon enabling materials. Um, from our perspective, you know, Inabat's a, a great partner, a great customer, uh, and 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 open to to talking about our relationship. You know, we have we have many other many many other customer relationships that that are are also progressing very aggressively and very successfully, um, and and hopefully be able to talk about those over the next couple of months. So stand by for more news on those. How's that different than the joint venture you have with SK in Korea? So SK is not a, a great a, a well-known brand name in the U.S. <clears throat> More familiar with Samsung and LG because they have make refrigerators, et cetera, and, and televisions. But but SK is actually one of the largest industrial conglomerates in the world. Expertise across the board in chemicals processing, uh, telecom, uh, semiconductor manufacturing, uh, et cetera. Um, we partnered with SK because they've got fantastic expertise in some of the materials that we need to make our uh, silicon carbon composite anode materials, and also because they've got one of the largest battery manufacturing divisions in the world. And so a really good synergy from up our supply chain and down our supply chain. And so SK recognized the opportunity, similar to Innovat, to get access to really evolutionary technology, revolutionary technology in some respects, to again move from lithium ion to lithium silicon. And together, we recognize the opportunity to establish a second source manufacturing facility in Asia. So this does two things for the industry. One, it provides a second source. As you know, uh, automotive manufacturers insist on second sourcing for almost everything they procure. And so it helps scratch that itch for our, our future customers as well as uh, providing um, uh, an opportunity to directly supply, uh, the again, a lot of the industry in Asia. Um, everybody wants domestic supply chain infrastructure now. And again, we provide that infrastructure in, in Asia with this joint venture. So it's moving forward pretty aggressively. I think uh, uh, SK announced, uh, the, officially announced the joint venture just about uh, a month and a half ago or so. And uh, and we should see that up and running here uh, as early as 2023. It's such an interesting dynamic, and you are absolutely right. It gets to that supply chain piece. Yeah. And I think the chip shortage is really a tangible example of that that says you know multiple industries competing for this critical commodity. We're seeing the ramifications of perhaps not seeing the risks that come from some of the sourcing decisions that have been made in automotive when it comes to this type of critical commodity. And I think electric vehicles and batteries you know, fall into that same area, right? There is a risk that if, if something is not addressed, uh, changes relative to supply chain and sourcing, and to your point, second sources, uh, we could run into supply chain disruptions when it comes to electrification as well. Yeah, you know, there's so much excitement about this rapid transition to electrified transportation and so many advanced technology companies doing different things to push the technology industry forward that there there hasn't been a lot of discussion or focus on kind of the, the, the necessary foundations to make this work at mm -hmm. automotive. 
And I'd like to think that we are thinking about that strategically and trying to look ahead and understand what does the industry really need to be successful. And of course, a domestic supply chain is critical. Second sourcing is absolutely critical. And uh, and we're really focused on addressing those at the very beginning of this this uh, this revolution, not trying to play catch up here in a couple of years, trying to figure out how to solve those problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rick, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Terrific conversation. Congratulations to you and your team. Looking forward to what's ahead as your journey continues. Thanks much, Steve. Really appreciate the time and looking forward to talking again soon. That's Daily Drive for Friday, September 10th. For breaking news, go to autonews.com. And to catch up on all of our episodes of Daily Drive, go to autonews.com forward slash Daily Drive. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy your weekend. We'll be back on Monday.